Dr. Twill, the Week in Health Law, the occasional podcast of record for the discussion of health or policy. This episode was recorded on August 1st, 2019. I'm Nicholas Terry, a professor of law at Indiana University in Indianapolis. This particular episode was recorded at the annual meeting of the Southeastern Association of Law Schools. It features a talk by Elizabeth Weeks, Associate Dean for Faculty Development and the J. Alton Harsh Professor of Law at the University of Georgia School of Law. Professor Weeks is a highly regarded health law scholar whose teaching and research interests include torts, health law, healthcare financing and regulation, and public health law. I'm going to be talking about the Texas versus United States case. The case is Texas versus United States. The case was argued on the first week in July on the 9th. This case was on expedited appeal from the Northern District of Texas, where Judge O'Connor in December 2018 issued an opinion striking down the ACA's individual mandate provision as unconstitutional and even more surprisingly as inseverable from the rest of the act, meaning that the whole thing, all parts, um, could not stand. And many commentators have suggested that this opinion is outlandish and not supported by the law. The order was stayed pending this appeal. And of course, any decision from the Fifth Circuit, um, the opinion likely to come this fall, would be subject perhaps to further review by the Supreme Court and would not have nationwide effect unless and until then that opinion also likely would be stayed. So I say outlandish, but of course, I've been surprised before um, in these ACA cases. Many of us who are health law scholars are can state exactly where we were when we heard the NFIB versus Sebelius opinion come down. And I, for example, was at Myrtle Beach on my parents' 50th wedding anniversary weekend and spent most of that morning inside watching CNN instead of at the beach, hearing these June 28, 2012 surprises from the Supreme Court that the court accepted the Commerce Clause argument against the individual mandate, but upheld it under the taxing power? Where did that argument come from? And struck down Medicaid expansion, first time ever using the spending power to strike down federal legislation, but sort of struck it down, but made it optional. And so all of these surprises embodied in that opinion um, at least give me caution in trying to prognosticate this um, present case. So quick refresher on the mandate. I don't think you all need this, but of course, this is the minimum essential coverage requirement from the ACA, which applied to anyone above the tax filing threshold, absent exceptions. And as the court has noted, there are ample exceptions in the statute. It could be satisfied by a variety of insurance types and the penalty um, at the highest was $695 per individual, um, never more than the cost of a lowest level actuarial value, that is 60% um, actuarial value bronze plan. Um, the individual mandate phased in. It didn't start until 2014, four years after the ACA was enacted, and then it was three years to ramp up to the full uh, penalty amount. One of the issues, of course, in NFIB was whether taxpayers could bring a claim before the tax was actually due. That was the Tax Anti-Injunction Act. The case was actually filed before the ink really was even dry on the ACA. The case out of the 11th Circuit, again, historic background, and I'm going to belabor both NFIB and King versus Burwell, because I think they're important for providing context for the current litigation in Texas versus United States. And also, I think for us pedagogically, this may be a way to reintroduce and contextualize these cases um, in our current discussion with students this um, academic year. So Florida versus HHS, um, the 11th Circuit case that ended up at the Supreme Court was one of um, a few ACA litigation cases against the individual mandate brought immediately after the statute's enactment. 26 states, including also 
individual business owners and the National Federation of Independent Business brought that case. Um, the individual business owners and NFIB included, um, especially for standing purposes, another issue that arises in the current case. Um, as we already know, the case, um, at least at the 11th Circuit, the individual mandate was struck down again as exceeding commerce power. Um, it was also held severable from the ACA and Medicaid expansion was upheld. Um, all lower courts had upheld Medicaid expansion prior to the Supreme Court opinion. These were the June surprises, as I already described. The court did allow the case to be heard, even though the tax was not due yet. So avoiding the Tax Anti-Injunction Act issue there. Debate, I think, about whether the commerce power decision was dicta or holding. There's certainly commentary suggesting that it was holding. The mandatory Medicaid expansion deemed unconstitutional. Again, the first time the court had applied the coercion limit on conditional spending power to strike down an act of con Congress. But the court did hold that although Medicaid expansion was unconstitutional, it could be severed from the rest of the ACA. The Commerce Clause arguments um, about um, are well familiar. We teach these, the action versus inaction distinction, the broccoli mandate, whether Congress can compel individuals into commerce and then purport to regulate that activity. Um, and again, the court said under the commerce power, no, you can't do it. We can't, you can't mandate um, the purchase of insurance under the commerce power. This is a little bit more in the weeds. Of course, the court ultimately upholds the individual mandate as a valid tax under the taxing power. So again, another precursor case to the current litigation that's relevant to and also cited in Texas versus United States and, and figured prominently at the oral arguments is King versus Burwell. This case is not a constitutional decision. It was an administrative law decision regarding the validity of an IRS rule providing that premium assistant tax credits should be available nationwide in all 50 states, not just states with state-operated exchanges. There was a rather intricate and some might say tortured statutory interpretation argument that Congress had limited subsidies to states that had established their own exchanges, but not those states that opted for the federal government to do so. So that was the issue in King versus Burwell. The reason it's relevant to Texas versus United States is not so much the substance of the decision, the, the statutory interpretation and administrative law principles, but certain metaphors that figured prominently in the court's reasoning, including this three-legged stool, making the point that if you knock out any one of these provisions of the ACA or, or prongs of the Act, the tax subsidies, the guaranteed issue and community rating provisions, or the individual mandate that the whole statute cannot continue to stand. Um, so in King, that analogy supported the court's conclusion that Congress could not have meant for the subsidies to be available in some, but not other states, because you'd have a two-legged stool in some states and a three-legged stool in other states, and the two-legged stool couldn't stand in those states. The King Court also referred to this um, uh, popular and frequently cited imagery, the insurance death spiral, noting, the court did, that some states had implemented community rating and guaranteed issue without an individual mandate and that their insurance markets collapsed because the notion is, of course, that if insurers have to issue a policy and can't risk rate, then rationally individuals will wait to purchase insurance until they think they need it or they're already sick and then as the aggregate risk in the pool rises, insurers will raise the premiums under community rating to cover those risks. Thus, more lower people 
school, opt out, and so on and so forth. The individual mandate, of course, corrects that problem by compelling lower risk people into the market before they get sick or before they think they need insurance. So with those policy rationales in mind, in the mix, along with the textual, contextual, and purposive analysis, Justice Roberts writing for the court again, as he did in NFIB, again, I suggest, saved the ACA um, from um, being struck down, upholding the IRS rulemaking and nationwide application of the tax subsidies. King versus Burwell, of course, included a rather um, saucy dissent from Justice Scalia, faulting the court again for rewriting the statute and saving it, dubbing the opinion SCOTUS care and other colorful language about pure applesauce and jiggery-pokery and so forth. So I guess one of the points I want to make in mentioning um, King versus Burwell is I think that the trajectory of the Roberts opinions on the ACA at least give me comfort that there is a strong sentiment at the court to recognize what's at stake with the possibility of striking down the entire statute and to hope at least that that is not the way that we are headed. So the decision in question now before the Fifth Circuit with an opinion expected this fall is Texas versus United States. Again, I mentioned um, Judge O'Connor's decision in December. The case was filed in February before Judge O'Connor. It was brought by 20 Republican state governors. Again, a similar posture to NFIB. Um, Governors or states objecting to the statute. Two of those governors later withdrew from the litigation. During the midterm elections, they elected um, Democratic governors who then withdrew from the litigation. And two individuals added um, as plaintiffs also, again, addressing some standing concerns. The defendants in the case were the United States, the Department of Health and Human Services, and its secretary, the Internal Revenue System uh, Service, and its commissioner. As the litigation proceeded, those parties actually came in alignment. The the plaintiffs and the defendants both were um, alleging that the individual mandate was unconstitutional, and thus the interveners, 17 states, as well as the U.S. Health of Representatives, actually in entered the litigation to defend the ACA. So this is the statute that um, brought about the possibility of this argument. This is the federal statute that actually repealed the tax penalty associated with the individual mandate, but the individual mandate language itself in the statute stands as enacted. So all that the TCJA did was zero out the tax penalty. But that change opened the door to the argument that the plaintiffs made, which is that if NFIB said the individual mandate is constitutional only under the taxing power and not under the commerce power, then once it's no longer associated with a tax penalty, it cannot be constitutional. And the court, the Supreme Court, has already said that it is not constitutional under the commerce power. It's worth noting that the the repeal of the penalty associated with the individual mandate passed through the reconciliation process, the budget reconciliation process, which has certain requirements as far as the limits on the um, legislation that can be passed there, but also requires fewer votes um, and is filibuster proof because of those procedural requirements. So as I mentioned, the December district court opinion was decided. The decision, however, was stayed pending the Fifth Circuit appeal. Various other filings occurred during that process and including this rather um, important filing from the United States Department of Justice. In March, the DOJ submitted this two-sentence memo to the Fifth Circuit saying that it actually had no intention of defending any part of the case and urged no reversal to any part of Judge O'Connor's judgment. So Judge O'Connor holding that the individual mandate was unconstitutional and inseverable. So again, the United States saying, that's right, no need to further argue this issue. And that's unusual um, for a variety of reasons. 
typically the United States will defend a duly enacted or promulgated federal law to the extent that it's constitutional, not the posture the United States is taking here. On the question of standing, the Judge O'Connor held that the individual plaintiffs have standing, thus he didn't have to reach the question of whether the states had standing. He further specified that although there was no economic injury to these individuals anymore because the tax penalty was zeroed out, that there was another other sorts of injury just associated with the requirement and that was sufficient. The state standing issue, again, not addressed. The essence of the decision that the individual mandate was no longer constitutional under the taxing power harkened back to certain hallmarks of a tax identified by the court in NFIB versus Sebelius. At this point, nothing is paid into the treasury. There's no amount of a tax. There are no familiar tax factors um, being used to, to uh, or applied to the mandate. There's no exemptions anymore because there's no requirement. No longer enforced by the IRS. No longer producing revenue for the federal government. And again, in NFIB, the court relied on these provisions to distinguish a tax from a penalty and to squarely ground the individual mandate in the taxing power. The more troubling to me part of the Judge O'Connor's decision was the severability question. So the, the judge further held that the individual mandate was inseverable from the rest of the ACA. So not just the provisions of the three-legged stool, but the entire statute could no longer stand once the individual mandate was um, deemed unconstitutional. And Judge O'Connor, um, this isn't my analogy, O'Connor uses this Jenga analogy to, to identify the various postures and arguments on severability that the parties made in the case. The plaintiffs and the federal defendants agreed that with the three-legged stool idea that the guaranteed issue and community rating provisions of the ACA are inseverable from the individual mandate. So those would have to fall. But things like wellness plan regulations or food labeling requirements, the snooky tax on indoor tanning, those perhaps could continue to stand. The plaintiffs then further argued that the individual mandate was inseverable from the ACA. So they would actually strike out everything, whereas the federal defendants would maintain that only those parts of the the other two legs of the stool would have to be knocked out. The intervener defendants, the states and the House of Representatives, argued that the individual mandate was severable from the ACA and from the guaranteed issue and community rating provisions. So essentially, if the court needs to deem those unconstitutional, it can strike just the individual mandate and the rest can stand. The court, however, did not agree with that and rather held that to leave the ACA in place without the individual mandate, or even more drastically to leave it in place without without either the individual mandate or the provisions covering pre-existing conditions, as the federal defendants suggest, would thus be wildly inconsistent with Congress's basic objectives in enacting the statute. Um, and the court found the essential individual mandate essential to and inseverable from the other provisions of the ACA. I'm going to talk a little bit about the oral arguments that occurred in July. So the oral arguments um, were 90 minutes split between the plaintiff states, the individual plaintiffs, and the DOJ versus the intervener plaintiff states in the House of Representatives. The panel, the three-judge panel, included two um, Republican appointees, Bush and then Trump for one, and Chief Justice, or former Chief Justice King, who was a Carter appointee. Judge King asked no questions during the 90 minutes of oral argument, the other two um, judges taking um, the, the stage in terms of questioning. I think the court seemed frustrated at times with the case, including the awkward standing issues and the lack of a congressional fix or prescription, especially on severability. There were issues that arose as the case was queued up on the scope of the lawsuit, the DOJ adopting a new position at this juncture, um, stating that Judge O'Connor's or arguing that Judge O'Connor's opinion, rather than applying nationwide, 
nationwide, applied only to the 18 plaintiff states and the two individual plaintiffs, creating an awkward, again, possibility that there might be different results in different states on the um, constitutionality of, of the ACA and the individual mandate in particular. Considerable time was spent during oral arguments on jurisdiction and standing and whether there was a remaining case or controversy at this point. On the constitutionality, the plaintiffs in the United States essentially make the argument, as I outlined earlier, that if NFIB justified the individual mandate as constitutional under the taxing power, once the tax goes away, it no longer can be justified. And further, again, the severability points. The interveners, however, argued that without the tax requirement, perhaps the law now could be justified under the commerce power. There's no longer a tax penalty, so it could be justified under the commerce power. However, if not, then the better answer for the court, rather than striking down the individual mandate, and certainly rather than striking down the entire act, would be simply to reinstate the tax, which then would make it lawful under the taxing power. On the severability question, a lot of those arguments went to which Congress's intent you are, this court should be considering. Severability generally defers to congressional intent. Looking to the 2010 Congress that enacted the ACA and relying on arguments articulated in NFIB and in King, the suggestion was that surely Congress meant for the whole statute to fall if the individual mandate were pulled out of it. However, the argument the other way is to look to the 2017 Congress, the TCGJA Congress, which clearly recognized that they were that they were zeroing out the tax penalty under the individual mandate, yet did not touch the rest of the statute. And looking to that intent, um, that can't be what Congress um, uh, intended in making that change to the statute. So the case, again, is poised for a written opinion from the court and then perhaps for further uh, review by the Supreme Court from there. And that was the Week in Health Law. A big thank you to Professor Weeks. Always a joy to have her voice on the show. Show notes are at twill.com from where you'll find a link to Professor Weeks's slides if you're interested in following along. I am at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Thank you for joining me and have a legally interesting but healthy week. <laughs>